Hi, Stella. Hey there. How are you? I am well. We uh, we were kind of looking back, and we have been back on YouTube now since January, February, which is really amazing. Yeah. It's a it's very different than what our YouTube channel looked like before, which is just kind of like a still image of the kind of podcast art. But now we are visually here with our faces. <laughs> um, I had a fear, like when we when we said we'd move to YouTube, I knew we'd get more listeners. I knew we'd get more comments. I knew we'd get a bigger, you know, uh, engagement. And we've got it and it's brilliant. But I was worried that we'd suddenly, I'd suddenly have to care what I was wearing and I'd have to care about my looks. But it kind of lasted about a week and then... <laughs> I kind of got over it. <laughs> I went back to yeah. my sloppy ways. <laughs> You're not sloppy stuff. Um, well, you know, it's interesting because I know we still have a lot of people who listen on yeah. audio only, which is amazing. Yeah. We love it. But we want to encourage people, first of all, if you watch us on YouTube and if you enjoy that, please don't forget to like our videos and subscribe yeah. to them. It really helps us to kind of share the podcast with more people. And if you're an audio only listener, please pop into YouTube every now and then because you'll see the comments section is full and there's a lot of amazing engagement, really supportive comments, really interesting critiques, really uh, insightful kind of like discussions back and forth. So even if you don't always check out our YouTube, please do. That will really help us out and subscribe to it and come engage and say hello in the comments just to let us know you're there. And if you find an episode particularly interesting, it's well worth going looking on the YouTube because you'll find points of view that you wouldn't have thought of because there really are some very, very thoughtful comments that are, are underneath the, the episode that, you know, you might be particularly interested in. It's well worth doing. So and of course, we appreciate it if you would. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's really helpful to us. Um so we talked to Aaron Kimberly today. Of course, many of you probably already know Aaron. He is one of the co-hosts of the Transparency Podcast, which is through uh, Gender Dysphoria Alliance. And he and Aaron Terrell run this incredible podcast. They are both trans men, and they talk to lots of very interesting trans people with a variety of perspectives, and of course, clinicians, therapists, not necessarily just trans individuals. And the show is really, really good. So um, today we kind of dive into a little bit more about Aaron's history. And he has yeah. an intersex condition, which he didn't really discover until he was a little bit older as an adolescent. And we delve into that story much more than we've heard Aaron talk about in the past. Yeah, and you do see when you listen to Aaron's story, you really, anybody who thinks it's simple, go and listen to this episode and you won't be so sure that it's simple at all because it's complex what happened to him and it feels like there's three different times and I'm not going to give it away but like there's three different times that the doctors failed him as such you know there was a very pathologic yeah. pathologizing experience when he was you know an adolescent with same-sex attraction then when he when he was when the doctor should have explained and diagnosed and given him information about his intersex condition there was basically shame and we've removed it now good luck goodbye which was a dreadful dreadful experience and then finally when he decided he was trans because of a, an ideological frankly um documentary that came out he, he was given uh testosterone within three months so it's uh, he, he's a catalogue of of doctors in different contexts decades apart frankly really really not providing sufficient or adequate or appropriate treatment to to somebody who needed it so 
it's 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 a very reflective story and it's a very yeah. very thought provoking very thought provoking yeah. story Aaron has yeah Aaron talks a lot about the importance of reality based narratives yeah. and kind of in line with that we delve into queer theory and what he learned when when he at the time was a she in the butch lesbian community and how queer theory kind of felt so powerful and gripping to a lot of gender non-conforming females, but how he ended up actually critiquing it for his, I think, master's project or his, his graduate school project in art. And so he's going to share with us um, his art, project, oh, yeah. which really deconstructs queer theory and critiques it from that perspective, saying like all of this essentially becomes nonsense when you take away the meaning of language. So. Very interesting conversation with Aaron. We'll tell you a little bit about uh, his kind of background. Aaron Kimberly is a female to male transsexual born with a rare ovotesticular intersex condition, which was diagnosed when he was 19 years old. As an adolescent, he was having severe gynecological problems and began to masculinize at the onset of puberty until the ovotestes was discovered and removed. For many years, Aaron was confused about his identity, sexuality, and biological sex, and eventually decided to continue masculinizing with HRT and to legally change sex from female to male. Aaron is also a mental health nurse with an interest in the many forms of gender dysphoria and concerned about the many iterations of social contagions among youth, such as tics, multiple personalities, and trans identity. He's the executive director of the Gender Dysphoria Alliance, co-host of the Transparency Podcast, a member of the newly launched LGBT Courage Coalition and a board member of the APISC Digital Research Foundation, which is using AI technology to map online influences on youth identity formation. So we can have a listen to Aaron now in this episode. We hope you like it. Hi, I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Through in-depth interviews, personal stories, and psychological exploration, we probe the gender landscape within contemporary culture. And we consider the implications of prioritizing personal identity over other aspects of the self. This is the thinking person's take on gender. Join us as we look at gender from a wider lens. Hi there, Stella. We are here with uh, TikTok dance sensation, Aaron Kimberly. <laughs> <laughs> no, Aaron, in, in all seriousness, we're really happy to have you here. Of course, we had your co-host, Aaron Carroll, on quite some time ago. We've really been wanting to get you on the program. So welcome. Thank you very much. And I've been looking forward to this conversation. Oh, and yeah. so, so have I. And well done on your podcast. It's it's a brilliant podcast. I, I listen to it a yeah. lot. It's like we're similar bent, but slightly different kind of emphasis. But it's it's a great podcast. I, I suspect there's a lot of overlap in our listeners. Yeah. Yeah. We refer to is. you guys often and I'll hear you guys refer to us. So it's almost like we're kind of simultaneously, you know, building off of one another. And I always have new yeah. things to think about listening to your show. So it's great. For a while there, we were almost on tandem where you would beat us to a guest that we were trying to book. <laughs> we always felt like they're going to think we're just copying them and just booking the same guests. <laughs> yeah, a little bit of uh, kind of just downstream, like conveyor belt guests. Like, we'll take them first, then you guys can take them. And vice versa. I mean, you guys have had Phil on a couple of Brilliant. times, Phil Illy, who will be joining us in the future. So oh, good. I think it goes both ways. That's great. So yeah. um, we were kind of thinking we would start 
chronologically at the beginning, as we often do, of course, in our intro, we shared with listeners that you are transsexual and you had your own experience of dysphoria as a kid. So maybe take us back to to your childhood and just tell us generally, what was that like? My understanding is you grew up in a pretty rural environment, right? I did. I've been telling people I basically grew up on the set of Little House on the Prairie. At least that's how it, it felt to me. It, it was, yeah, it was a very rural setting. Um, I was born in 73. So to kind of contextualize that in very small farming community in Manitoba. My grandparents mm-hmm. farmed. Um, my dad left the farm, but I grew up with on an acreage with horses. And my dad and my brother were both involved in the rodeo circuit. So very, very rural setting. Uh, the town was about including all surrounding areas, about 3,000 people in the nearest city was about a two hour drive away. Oh, wow. Okay. Indeed, Little House on the Prairie. Did you ride horses when you were a kid? I did. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't end up in the rodeo with with my dad and my brother, but um, yeah, we went on like weekend trail rides and horses were a big part of my my growing up. And I imagined I would grow up to be a cowboy someday. Yeah. Okay. And when you were a kid, what was the age difference with you and your brother? My brother's five years younger. Oh, younger. Okay. Yeah. Did gender make itself known? Did you did you have early onset gender dysphoria? I was born around the same time as you. I was just imagining me in Ireland, you in Manitoba in Canada. And did you yeah. have that early onset yeah. from, from a young age or did, was it later on? I did, and I've and I've kind of compared notes with with what my parents observed as well. And so I think we all are in agreement. It started around age three, and it wasn't something I verbalized. I didn't know how to put it into a language, and I was a very shy kid, not terribly assertive. Um, So I never really like explicitly said there's something wrong or I am a boy. But I would find ways of. Um, subtly trying to express that just through how I was dressing. Um, Throughout my childhood, a lot of kids that didn't really know me well mistook me as a boy. I was accidentally put on a boys baseball team one one year, for example. And and there was always that that, um, uh, locking horns with my parents. You know, my dad would say, hey, you're a cowgirl. And it's like, no, I'm a cowboy. So there, there was subtle hints that my my parents didn't know how to understand at the time and I didn't know how to understand at the time but I was definitely making an effort to you know my mom was a hairdresser so she did my hair for my whole life and you know so she had a lot of control over what my hair looked like and and what I wore and there was always the battle with her no I want a short haircut and I want to shop in the boys section and I would always play with my brother's toys rather than my own but I think in a rural farm setting especially for girls, probably less so for boys, but I think there was a lot of room for me to be gender non-conforming and a tomboy in a setting like that. A lot of farming women aren't very fussy with nails and hair as it is. So then my grandmother was a farming woman was, I wouldn't describe her as masculine, but she definitely wasn't, you know, frilly or, or fussy as a woman. She was a very hardworking woman and And so there was a lot of room for me to be gender non-conforming up to a certain point. I think as a teenager and moving into adulthood, there's more of an expectation of you need to drop that and and start feminizing. But as a little kid, I didn't receive a lot of pushback from many people. So you were running around like I was with short boys hair, boys clothes, people presuming you were a boy. Strangers, yeah. Yep. 
Yeah, me yeah, too. Strange, a lot of strangers. It's funny because my, my brother, and he would be embarrassed by this story, but my brother, not at all feminine, very masculine man now, but as a boy had, had long, blonde, curly hair. It was a very pretty boy. So people would often mistake him as the girl and me as the boy if they knew my parents had one of each. So I used to call his name is Chris. I used to call him Christina as a kid to tease him. <laughs> That's he so interesting. It's interesting, too, because it makes me just think if hypothetically you had grown up in like a, a family in Manhattan with like a super glamorous environment and a glamorous mother and like much more polarized gender roles, you would have probably stood out younger. Whereas for you, based on just being in a rural farming community where everyone kind of gets their hands dirty, works on the farm, works with animals or whatever, you kind of flew under the radar. It wasn't remarkable that you were quite a masculine kid. Yeah, I mean, I've heard butch lesbians joke that, you know, farming women look like butch lesbians. I mean, it's not uncommon to see a farming woman with short hair and because it's easy to, to maintain and wearing flannel, yeah. flat flannel shirts. So so there was a lot of room for me to, to do that and fly under the radar. But I, I definitely pushed it to every every, you know, extreme limit that I could. And um, I had a very act, active imagination. I had sort of a parallel imaginary self almost like an alter ego and, and I think that's just was my way of trying to trying to grapple with what was happening to me because I did have a sense that something is wrong like I felt this isn't just that my preference for short hair it's not just because I'm rough and tumble and, and not not prissy but it, it I really did believe that in some way I literally was male and some mistake had been made and that was very confusing and that's the part I had a certain amount of shame about and didn't know how to articulate to anybody and, and didn't know how to, just how to make sense to that. Of that I've experience. heard you talk about this as a categorization error in the past. Can you lift that up? Because I think that's very interesting. That's what makes the most sense to me. I've really tried to find ways of articulating that experience without just resort, resorting to stereotypes or just resorting to some of the, the rhetoric. That we now hear today like born in the wrong body but i think it what makes sense to me was that it you know around age two or three is is when kids start to develop their cognitive categorization process of, of grouping things into categories which is largely based on observable differences between things so there is a certain a certain amount of stereotype that goes into that it, inevitably that's just the natural process so whether it's cats or dogs and sorting out, I mean, lots of cats and dogs are the same size and they both have four legs. There's a lot of similarities between those, those two things. But most kids around age three could reliably point to most dogs and say that's a dog and most cats, that's a, that's a cat. And it's an unconscious process of just observing those differences. And it's not uncommon for kids to walk up to somebody and say, are you a boy or a girl? And it's not it's a very innocent question because I think what that is, is they're developing that categorization of what is a boy and what is a girl. And if there's somebody that doesn't fit into how they've constructed those categories, if they're an outlier in some way, then they need to ask, right? And then they integrate that, in, that information into their categories and hopefully have enough flexibility um, cognitively to, to do that and keep integrating information into into these categories. But I think I had so many natural tendencies and traits of boy that I kept putting myself in the boy category, even though I knew that wasn't technically correct. 
So I don't think it's a delusion. A lot of people call it a, a delusion, and I don't think it's a delusional belief. I think it's a categorization, unconscious categorization error that as a young child makes sense. What's, what's less confu more confusing for me is why didn't that resolve as I integrated more and more information into those systems? And could I ask, you said you had an alter ego. Was there a, an alive and kicking alter ego or was that just a minor aspect? It was a very, I would say it was a very major part of my childhood. It, it, you know, I had a, had a name, I had named him Philip. And, and that to me felt like this is my authentic self. This is, I imagined myself to grow up. And so when I was in imaginary play, for example, with other kids, it was, it was Philip showing up in that imaginary play to play Luke Skywalker as we were playing Star Wars in the playground and those kinds of things. And I imagined I would grow up someday to, to be a man and get married and have a, a farm. And oh. so it was a constant negotiating of my actual reality. And how do I integrate this, this inner sense of self that I've created? Did, did your friends know about Philip or was this your secret persona that was there? It reminds me when I was a kid, me and my brother had kind of imaginary play and like Bill, who was 18, was a, a big person in our in our imaginary lives. And obviously both me and my brother thought Bill, who was 18 in our imaginary play, was this very, very cool kid. And I'm thinking now my brother obviously was, you know, I, I think we were both heading towards being Bill when we were 18, but it's not quite the same as what you were doing. Would any of your friends have known about this Philip person? They did. No, I never, never spoke about it out loud. No. So they would ask questions. I mean, they picked up on my gender nonconformity. I would have kids just walk up to me and say, like, how do you look so much like a boy? Or why do you look so much like a boy? And, and would ask questions about it. But nobody knew about that inner life that I had. And did this Phil character per, per, persist for you, like, deep into your adolescence? Or, like, because I'm so interested in it and... I have another question, but let me ask that one first. How long did Phil stick around or is Phil still around? <laughs> I wouldn't say he's still around. It was, um, it was probably around adolescence that there was still a sense of that inner, inner um, male, but it didn't have a name. I mean, I kind of dropped the, the name and it's, yeah, it's funny because I don't. Re it's not like I remember a very sudden uh, disappearance of him. Yeah. But there was, yeah. So I, it just changed. I think over time, I, I did. I think start to integrate more of those qualities into my sense of self as I got older. But so I would say he was more prominent when I was very small, and it was probably just a very gradual um, integration of him. I don't think he ever disappeared. I would say he integrated into me. But you didn't go with the name Phil when you decided to transition. No, as I got older, I didn't even like the name. And I don't even know why I chose <laughs> that name at the time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so when you moved into adolescence and your gender nonconformity started to, I mean, you were always naturally kind of pushing the boundaries of the, the tomboy, right? Because you yeah. were much more masculine than that. But then in adolescence, when this started to perhaps be like a point of obvious noticing to others or conflict with your family, what was the framework that you had to understand that either internal dialogue or like, what did your parents tell you about your, 
masculinity. What did you understand about it? I really didn't understand it at all. I wouldn't say I had any framework to understand it, which I think was the biggest problem and the thing that caused me the most distress, you know, to have an experience that you can't put into words and you can't, you can't even let anyone into that experience. If you don't have words for it, then how do you communicate to others that it's happening and, and, and make sense of it? So I would say that was probably where most of the distress came from. And as I got older, I think everyone, including me, just assumed that that was, um, that I was, I was gay and that that was the explanation for the gender nonconformity. Um, so I started to get bullied a lot more. I wasn't bullied very much as a small kid, but I got bullied more um, towards adolescence. And I did start developing attractions to to girls around that time as well. So, you know, sort of around grade six is my earliest memory, starting to develop crushes. So I think that's how everyone, including myself, started to make sense of it. I didn't know any other gay or lesbian people in a, in a town that size. There probably were some, but I didn't know, know of any of them. Um, and my parents, when I, when they found out that I had a crush on a girl in high school, they actually sent me to my family doctor to diagnose me and determine if I actually was gay or not, which in itself was a, a strange experience. And he asked me a lot of questions about well, what role do you want to play in relationships? And, and that question confused me. I mean, I was still pretty young at that age. It's like a role. I don't know. I just find that girl hot. Like there's, so what, I found this line of you? questioning me. How do you diagnose? I would probably would have been, it was probably junior high. I'm, it was early teens. Whoa. Awful. So a big deal was made out of it, right? And it was it was very clear to me that this wasn't okay. I mean, to be taken to a doctor, I mean, that's really pathologizing that experience. And um, the doctor, after talking to me, pulled my parents in the room and said, "Well, yeah, you know, I think, I think she is. Uh, you know, these feelings are are real. I think she's probably a lesbian." And my mom started crying and said, "My life would be awful." And so it was very much a very shaming experience oh, and, and no framework to understand it and then as far and I felt like I was the only one in the entire world like this yeah you know I want to come back to your story but I I always try my best to understand what is the rush to affirm gender identities particularly in the kind of rapid onset cases and I think what you've described is precisely how a lot of activists and affirmative care clinicians think about what we're seeing now, which is out of the blue, a kid comes out, says, I'm really a boy. Parents cry. What does this mean? Are you a transsexual? Your life's going to be ruined, which we know that's not true anyway, right? But this is the fear. Then they take them immediately to a doctor. What's wrong with my daughter? Then they get a list of diagnoses, depression, ADHD, OCD, whatever. So that is a pathologizing experience. So we, we have an episode coming out about like things our GD parents don't want to hear and something we touch on that like when you all of a sudden panic when your child is sharing this thing with you and immediately take them to a doctor, I think the intentions are very positive. But to the child, it really does feel like, wow, I am broken. Something's wrong with me. I'm not supposed to be having these thoughts or feeling these feelings. And I, I imagine that was really hard for you because you shared this personal thing that like you really didn't think much about it. And that's where 
the shame comes in. You know, we talk to so mm -hmm. many people who discuss kind of internalized homophobia and it's easy to label it after the fact, but in the moment, all you probably feel is I'm wrong. Something's very wrong with me. Yeah, you know, and adults can do that in very all kinds of subtle ways that they maybe don't intend, right? I mean, I even remember experiencing kindergarten because I was very artistic, I liked to draw. And I remember we got a lot of um, different exercises in kindergarten of a sheet where there was maybe a partial shape on it. And then we were told, guided to, to turn that into something. And I remember one time, so it was just, uh, I think it was just an oval with a little sort of loop on one, one side of it. And we were told to turn that into a face. And I interpreted it as that that little loop on the side was the nose. And so I drew the face in a profile view rather than a, a front view. And they made a, such a big deal out of that because they said, this is, we've never seen any kid do this before. Like five-year-olds don't, can't usually conceptualize a face in profile view. So they called in my parents and they made a big deal of it. And I thought I'd done something horribly wrong. Like, why are you bringing my parents in? Like nobody really, so my only point being that, that sometimes adults can do things in a way that ends up being interpreted as a very shaming thing, even when their intention is just curiosity and, um, so I found that, that they, that my, the reaction to my gender nonconformity was similar to that, that you pick up on these cues and I am a natural internalizer. Um, so you pick up on these cues that there's something not right about me and other people are, are responding it to me in a way that where their discomfort was, was maybe quite apparent. And so it was a very shaming experience and just my mom's devastation in finding that news and about my, my sexual orientation. But so at that time, we didn't know about my, my intersex condition. Um, but I was starting to masculinize more. Uh, so at the onset of puberty, um, I did develop breasts. So I was feminizing, but I, I was simultaneously masculinizing as well. So I was developing facial hair, um, body hair. My uh, voice started to become more, more crackly and, and dropped a bit in pitch. And, and so people were commenting on that as well. Like, why are you de developing facial hair, for example? And I was developing a, also a, a lot of gynecological problems. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us about the intersex condition um, and uh, in, in, in baby steps? Because they're, it's always so complex so fast. For sure. So, um, so like I said, I was developing a lot of gynecological problems and eventually I had to see a gyne gynecologist. I was having so much pain, very irregular periods. Some months I'd have it really heavy, other months not at all, um, but having a lot of pain with it. And um, so I eventually saw a gyne gynecologist. They discovered a very large cyst on what they thought was an ovary at the time. And it was about the size of a grapefruit and it was causing me a lot of pain. They said it was endometriosis. And so um, I had surgery for that to remove the cyst. And, and when what I came age out were, of surgery. What, what age um, were you then? So you that was, asking. so it, by the time I saw a gynecologist, I was about 19. Okay. Okay. And I was in, in college and was having these attacks of pain, you know, to, like to the point where I would be passing out, throwing up and being rushed to emergency. The pain was so bad. And so they said it was the pain was because of this cyst that had developed and 
when I, when I talked to the surgeon after the surgery, he said the cyst had pretty much engulfed my ovary. And so they couldn't really see it. Um, it had damaged the ovary so much and they couldn't really delineate where the, the cyst stopped and where the organ started. And so they had to just remove all of it. And they sent it for biopsy as they typically do. Um, they sent it for biopsy and the pathology report came back saying that it was an oval testes. And so he described that to me as this is, it's partially, you know, you've got testicular tissue as well as ovarian tissue. Um, he didn't provide me much information about it. He seemed a little bit embarrassed for me and seemed to just kind of reassure me that, well, it's gone now, so you don't need to worry about it. Of course, he didn't know I experienced gender dysphoria. Mm. And so he said that was the explanation for why I was masculinizing because um, I had higher than, than average female levels of testosterone. Um, I guess leaving it would have been a cancer risk, he said. So he just said, it's good, it's gone, and just sort of reassured me. I think he just assumed, well, you're a woman and you wouldn't want to be masculinized. So let me offer you this reassurance that it's gone and you won't continue um, what to be masculinized. Is what is an over testes? What, what is that? So there's different, my, the way that mine presented was that it was like a hybrid organ, that this, this organ was both a, a testicle and an ovary. It contained tissue of each. And I was infertile. Um, so he didn't, he didn't um, pr really provide me any more information than that. And I just thought, well, maybe that is why I did, well, A, it's why I'm masculinizing. So that immediately made more sense. And I chalked it up as that's probably why I felt like I was that, in fact, male all this time. So, so I just, just kind of chalked up my gender dysphoria to having high testosterone levels. And, but it, so in one way, it validated my feelings. In other ways, it confused me even more. And again, there was sort of that shaming, whether he intended or not, this shaming sort of, um, attitude of the surgeon that he felt that he seemed uncomfortable and I picked up on that cue so that felt I had never heard of intersex conditions um yeah and so it it, it confused it. so in some ways it confused me even more because then I was even confused okay what biological sex am I then mm -hmm. what criteria do I use to determine which biological sex I am and did you have like full facial hair or how masculinized were you when you're about 1920 let's say i would say it was very androgynous well into my early 30s so i had a um a mustache and a little bit of hair sort of on my chin and but it wasn't like a full thick beard like i have now but had i kept that testes, if my hormone level if my testosterone levels continued to be high i would have continued to masculinize more can I ask, I mean, in hindsight now as an adult, and not just as an adult, but somebody who's a nurse who works with youth, who obviously you have your own experience of transition and you had this, these weird experiences with professionals when you were a kid dealing with your dysphoria, then dealing with the kind of uh, recognition that you had this condition. What do you think would have been more helpful for that doctor to, or your family to say to you at the time? Because that is really probably very confusing. What would have been helpful to hear? 
I think the facts would have been helpful. Like if, if this had been diagnosed earlier and if, if we had, if I had information about what it was and what was like, cause this is a, this oval testicular DSD, I think is the rarest of all the DSDs. It's not very common. Hmm. And I don't know a lot about it cause I would say my care has been so disjointed. I mean, like growing, growing up in a tiny little town, I mean, and because this is such a rare intersex condition and intersex conditions in general are rare, like a lot of the family physicians in a tiny little farming community have never had any experience with anyone with an intersex condition and everything my dad knows about sex and sexuality comes from the farm, unfortunately, like, so if they, unless they saw an intersex animal, like it just wouldn't be on their radar. And, um, and because I felt those hints of this is this is somehow shameful or weird i didn't disclose that information to every care provider either and and it was gone so i saw no reason to because that's, that's what the surgeon had told me it, it's gone so it's gone. no longer an issue it's like you were told by the surgeon your intersex condition is gone you had it we took it out and exactly. it's gone and is 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 your kind of understanding now is it should have been left because actually you would have got the beard that you now have and could it have been left or was the pain such that it needed that surgery? It sounded like it had to be removed, but I, I do feel like in hindsight, it's like, well, keeping it or not, or continuing to masculize or not should have been my choice, you know? Um, so in this case, I don't think, it was an option to leave it just because he couldn't tell the difference between cyst and, and ovotestes. So he had to remove it all. And, but yeah, I mean, in hindsight, I think I might have chosen to, to continue masculinizing. At the time, I mean, you had been experiencing gender dysphoria such that you had categorized yourself as a boy and then as an adolescent teenage boy, and then as a male and you're getting older. But then this doctor comes in and says, oh, uh, don't worry, we got rid of that whole thing and you're a regular lady now. <laughs> like, yeah. how did that, what did that do for your self-conceptualization? Did you just feel worse for being dysphoric or were you like, ah, oh, great, now I can put that behind me and be a, a lesbian, like a normal lesbian, though you didn't know any lesbians. Like, what happened when you, when it was framed for you that way by a surgeon, by a professional? Yeah, I mean, it reinforced the idea that my perception of myself as male was was wrong, you know, mm -hmm. because he was really reinforcing this idea that, well, you must be happy that we removed it so that you won't continue to masculinize because what woman would want a beard? You know, like, he didn't know about my gender dysphoria. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. I met a, a, a woman recently um, at uh, at a at a conference that I attended, that it that she specializes in working with people with intersex conditions, and in a five minute conversation with her, I learned more from her about my own condition than I ever have from any care provider oh my God. I've ever seen. And she said that it's that this condition is more common amongst um, Africans. It's and it tends to most usually be uh, females, so those with XX chromosomes but that it's a very typical trajectory for this intersex condition to masculinize as a teenager and decide to, to live as a man into adulthood. So as rare as this condition is, mm -hmm. it, it was kind of reassuring to me that my tra trajectory was actually typical. Oh, yeah. Whoa. I and mean, that's, that's unbelievable. Yeah. 
And did you, were you broad? Did you have a broad shoulder? Did you have a male torso? I know you had breasts, but like, what was your body? I've got this. And also, did you remove your hair or did you leave it? And did you like it? Your facial hair? I, there were times, well, as, as a young person, I always removed it. I would use like those hair removal creams and stuff or shave it. I didn't like the stubble, so I would usually use the hair removal creams. Um, later in life as an adult, when I was experimenting with an identity as a butch lesbian, there were times where I let, let that grow a little bit, but um, as a, yeah, as a young adult, I was, had a very androgynous appearance. I was a very tall, skinny kid. So I didn't have like an hourglass figure, which I was always grateful for that I had pretty much a beanpole um, build like, like my dad. My dad, as a young guy, was always very embarrassed by how tall and skinny he was. And I had the same build as him. I was very tall and skinny. We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high quality content for the show. To take an even deeper dive and support the show, join our listener community for access to exclusive content, practical tools, and resources supporting gender and identity exploration. We're so grateful to our sponsor, Genspect, an international organization which offers an alternative to WPATH, providing a range of education, resources, and supports to anyone impacted by gender distress. Genspect unites many different organizations globally and gives voice to thousands of previously untold stories. For more info, visit genspect.org. And thank you to our sponsor, Geta. Geta is an association of therapists who believe that individuals experiencing gender-related concerns ought to be treated using a whole-person approach. We connect like-minded clinicians, provide educational resources and training, and help people with gender dysphoria find the right help. Visit Geta at genderexploratory.com. And now back to the conversation. So then I want to kind of move forward in the timeline. Yeah. <laughs> Your perception of yourself as male was indeed confirmed to be wrong by the doctor, but then presumably at some point you identified yourself as a butch lesbian and you moved into that world and presumably you dated some women or you met some so was that in your small town or did you move? Like, how did you end up integrating into the, the le- world of lesbians? Yeah, so when, as soon as I graduated from high school, I moved to the city and that's when I started hanging out at the at the lesbian bar and, and started to get to know other, other lesbians. And I was still at that time thinking, well, maybe this whole experience is about just being a masculine lesbian. I mean, that was the, I graduated from high school in 90, 90s so in the 80s and into the early 90s we did think of gay and lesbian people as very gender non-conforming mm-hmm. that's how they were very often represented in popular media and that would have been my only exposure to what gay and lesbian meant at the time was anything i might have seen in a movie or on television and um so i thought of lesbians as being very masculine appearing and so i still was thinking because i still didn't know how to make sense of this whole experience and um and I had moved to the city before my intersex condition was diagnosed because I moved to the city at 18. My condition was diagnosed at 19. So I was still trying to do my best to limp along with what information I had to make sense of it. And so I was still thinking, well, I'm just a masculine female. And maybe that's, for all I know, maybe all these other masculine lesbians have high testosterone levels and an intersex condition. I, I didn't know. Oh, wow. 
but I definitely met a lot of very masculine lesbians. Mm -hmm. Did you feel more comfortable around them? Uh, yeah, I would say I did. I felt I ended up um, floating in and out of uh, the butch femme lesbian scene, which did offer some some relief. And, you know, because I could, I felt like I could be myself and I felt valued within that subculture. Um, but in some ways it also intensified those feelings because to, to finally feel seen and validated and have a subculture that where I could, you know, we often use male nicknames mm -hmm. and male pronouns and um, developed a sense of like brotherhood with other other butches but it had, it intensified how uncomfortable it was for me outside of that subculture to when you sort of feel safe and validated within a subculture it's like okay now but now in contrast the rest of the world feels weird and uncomfortable to be kind of called by male pronouns within my my peer group but now everyone everyone else is still calling me female and so that contrast mm -hmm. actually intens intensified my discomfort a lot of people who are listening may not be aware that for a long, long time in the lesbian community, butch women have played around with things like binding, chest flattening, he, him pronouns, being referred to as guys. So that seems like some people comment on it as though it's a completely contemporary thing, but it's actually not. I mean, it's contemporary for straight girls to be doing that, but um, that's not new. Uh, so I just want to kind of point that out. You lifted that up in your story. Mm -hmm. And most of the, the butches that I knew over the years, I, I think there is a, something, there is some connection with social class too. I mean, most of the, I don't think it's a coincidence that most of the butches I had meeting were, were blue collar people. They grew up working class and had blue collar jobs as adults. Um, why that is, I, I don't know what that correlation is. Maybe there's just more you know, like like my experience growing up in the farm life, maybe there's just more room to be gender non-conforming in the working class. And, and I mean, uh, there's evidence of that in other cultures where, you know, like lady boys, for example, in, in Asia, they tend to be working class as well. There's less tolerance for gender non-conformity in higher classes. Hmm. Well, that's that's kind of flips today on its head, I think. I mean, it is the educated Ivy League kids that are really playing with gender in a particular way now, though I know there are a lot of working class and lower income young people who struggle with dysphoria and who might be transitioning, but that's very interesting the way you frame that. It has really flipped. I mean, we talk a lot about the, the sex ratio flip, but there's been other flips as well. And I would say mm -hmm. that socio socioeconomic flip is, is really apparent to me. And yet people would say that like, the traditional working man was a very masculine man and, uh, you know, the effete intellectual higher class, socially higher class man was well known. If you follow me, that that's a pretty well known trope, I would have thought. Um, yeah, God, that's that's something to think about that I definitely want to revisit in my mind. Um, wh when did queer theory made itself known or am I going too fast? Like, like, or, you know, have we covered this butch lesbian period? Because before we do go on to queer theory and I do want to go on to it, it feels to me that socially transitioning can antagonize gender dysphoria. And it feels to me that that's what you felt among this butch lesbian kind of habit that 
you know, of of effectively socially transitioning within the group. And then you go out into the real world and you feel more uncomfortable with yourself. And you could argue if we had studied those butch lesbian groups, we would have a cohort where we could discuss how social transitioning arguably intensifies the distress, even though it gives a short term relief. It, it could give you a long term pain. And also, were you going back to, let's say, the farm and the family you know, almost putting on the mask of being a woman again and then going back to the boys as such as a, as a butch lesbian. I asked loads of questions in that. Forgive me. Yeah, I would say that the, in terms of just the, the chronological order of events that my um, time within butch lesbian community and when I was introduced to queer theory was around the same time. So um, so when I left left the farm, moved to the city and, and it it was almost like I mean, I was very lived a very sheltered life, coming off the set of Little House of the Prairie as I was, not exposed to very much. It was a very sheltered existence. I wasn't very well prepared for the big world out there. I was very naive, and so it was a lot like you know how the Amish kids—they're they're sent out to see the world and decide if they want to come back to the farm or not. I would say that that my leaving the farm was similar to that. I was naive and just went out into the world and um and and yeah so i ended up uh going to university i went to art school and i had a few friends in art school that were also gay or lesbian and we all decided to take a queer theory class as an elective at one of the nearby universities and so that was my so that would have been around 1995 I think 95, 96. So the, the very beginnings of queer theory, Judith Butler's second book had just been published. And um, as a group of, of young gay and lesbian artists, queer theory was very exciting because it was so visual and there was so much emphasis on performance, performativity. It was very easy to kind of cross that over into art and make art about it. Um, so that's what we, we started to do was taking these ideas of, of things like male masculinity and performativity and um, started to make um, very performative art around that and weaving some of these queer ideas into art that looked like um, mainstream advertising. That was one of our intentions was to photograph ourselves, for example, like um, this one friend I had in art school, she would she was doing drag and I would photograph her and we would try to make that look like um, like an advertisement you'd see in a magazine to try to really mainstream some of these ideas. Um, but the way that it was uh, described to me was we first started learning about the work of um, the French philosopher Foucault and read the history of sexuality. And his idea was that the, that homosexuality as a category of personhood was an invention by heterosexuals for the purpose of oppressing homosexual people. And so queer theory built off of that idea. It really accepted that idea that these categories are only for the, for the purpose of oppressing other people. So the, the project of queer theory through um, a very politicized use of language and, and performance is trying to blur these categories. That if, if we can't, if we can complicate these categories and disguise these categories to the degree that you can't tell the difference between what is a gay person or, 
a straight person or male or female that we can't be oppressed. And so that's what we're seeing playing out in this, you know, queer theory and this youth subculture that's developed with all these now hundreds of neo pronouns and new genders. It's almost like we want to create so many genders that everyone is just absolutely confused about gender. And that if, if we create these infinite number of genders, eventually the gender will just be irrelevant and useless because everyone will have their own gender. So that, that's the mission, right? It's just it's this smoke and mirror show that will never end. As soon as there's another category, then you say, well, that category is going to oppress somebody. So now we need to queer that category. And it, it'll be a never-ending project of always confusing us about categories. But when you think about the cognitive categorization process of determining who is male and female that starts around the age of two, when they're going into schools teaching queer theory to kids, they're really disrupting a natural necessary cognitive categorization process that we're supposed to go through. And it must be very important if that process starts around age two. We're obviously meant to understand differences and be able to categorize things. And really what queer theorists are doing is breaking down our natural cognitive processes. And breaking down our categorization abilities, which is where you think it kind of centers in many ways. And when did you decide to medically transition or was it always hovering? I didn't even know that was an option. So that was never on the table until much later in life. I didn't know that. So I was meeting a lot of highly masculine women, usually at little house parties. And in the safety of those house parties is when people would, you know, um, glue theatrical um, hair onto their faces and, and really explore those aspects of self and, and very much looked like men and we're very we're often very physically masculine as well and this wasn't related to the queer theory part this is just within the butch lesbian scene these very highly masculine women um, but it, yeah I, I, no one I knew at that time was was medically transitioning and I didn't even know that was an option um, but I would say that learning queer theory, because it's trying to dismantle these categories, I would say it made my gender dysphoria a lot worse. It really intensified that confusion because when you're already struggling to figure out, okay, which biological sex am I even? Because I didn't know about my intersex condition at that time. And then queer theory starts to get in your head that intends to make you confused about these categories. It's like, well, I don't like where do I land in this, right? How do I resolve this confusion I have about which by which category do I belong in? So it's interesting because presumably, if we were to try and like steal man queer theory, we might say there's an opportunity here to make people feel less bad if they don't fit perfectly into a category. But it had the opposite effect; it made you more distressed. What was going on for yeah. you? Was there like a, was it because you didn't fully buy the queer theory? Because you were like, well, I still want concrete categories. Like I get all of this artistically, creatively, like mm -hmm. esoterically, but actually in real life on the ground, I need to understand like, who am I? Who is my wife or girlfriend? Who is that person? Mm -hmm. Like, was it that? Like you hadn't bought in enough. Like you weren't a true believer. And if only you no. could have been a better believer, you would have been yeah. healed of your dysphoria. So says a queer theorist. Yeah. I mean, I initially bought into it. I initially was in, you know, found it fascinating and um, 
they're interesting ideas and, and the amount of effort that it takes to d- decipher these ideas. I remember sitting down trying to read Judith Butler and I had to have a dictionary <laughs> by my side at all times. Like, and I deciphered it word for word. I mean, I was, I was very oh. dedicated to wanting to understand it. And there were aspects of it that resonated with me. I think her work really, um, and I don't know if she intended this or not, but it, it, it very masterfully hooks into, I think, the gay and lesbian psyche. I think it, it just, it just, it deeply resonates with people in a way that I don't even know how to put into words, but we all intuitively felt drawn to these concepts of female masculinity and male femininity. And because there is an aspect of gender nonconformity that is associated with same-sex attraction that is poorly articulated and understood in our culture and poorly integrated into our culture. And I think that's what it hooks into. And I think that's what drag kings and drag queens are about. It's, it's a way of trying to grapple with that and express it in, in ways that are socially acceptable because it's, you know, it was socially acceptable for me to be gender nonconforming as a young child, but it, by the time I was a teenager and into adulthood, that was no longer socially acceptable. You're kind of expected to get over it at that point. Mm-hmm. And, um, but by the end, by the end of my art school years, I was there for, for five years in total because I took uh, a term off. By the end of that five years, my graduating art show was actually a critique of queer theory because it was it was making me so confused. And I had a sense of, well, this is all performance that's really shallow and superficial. So my graduating um, art show was was about that superficiality of it and the just the the fruitlessness of it and because i didn't want my life to just be a you know this performance i really wanted to be grounded in in reality and and with some depth and so my show was all was a bunch of invented portraits of people and i i they were pencil drawings and i borrowed um i noticed in in leonardo da vinci's work a lot of his figures have this very blank kind of vacant stare. I don't know if he intended that, but they have this, this is, yeah, this very blank stare. So I borrowed that from his work where all these faces of young people with this very just vacant look in their eyes. Mm. And then I took typographical characters and rather than typing them into words, I typed them into patterns, just, just purely visual, almost like wallpaper patterns. And I traced that into their bodies. So their bodies were just a, a blank silhouette with these patterns superimposed into it. So just this very flat, shallow, superficial portrait of these invented people and basically stripping language of meaning and using the the characters. So my show was was a pun on the word characters. Mm -hmm. It was stripping, taking these typographical characters, stripping it of all verbal meaning and just making it a purely aesthetic artifice. so that was my so that was my, my opinion of career theory by the time do I do you graduated. still have images of this art work or I'd love I do to I see still that. have I, yeah I Could still have all of them I, would you be sure. willing sure oh that's amazing. I did I did 60 of them but I have I took pictures of them so I'll send you a couple of them wow that would be great well we'll include it in the YouTube version of this video if that's okay that's really but it ended up it ended up being I think a pretty accurate prediction of where this would go too because that's exactly what every rogd kid looks it looks like these portraits that i drew right they're just kind of vacant and superficial and about performance and and lacking in 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 depth and meaning Mm -hmm. 
I, I mean, from, from my work with these kids, I think that's definitely true for some of them. I think with the right type of support over time, it can kind of shift and morph into something more profound, more deep, more spiritual, intellectual, interesting. But you're right, on the surface, this is what we see. It's like kind of copy-paste, curate an identity. I mean, kids are saying, I just went online and looked up names. You know what I mean? Like it seems yeah. to be so um, like mm-hmm. peer mediated and online and not really that deep. So I think that's a very interesting foreshadowing for what was coming. Um, I, I'm very conscious of time going on. I do want to hear about, you know, when you transitioned and also how you feel now having transitioned quite some time. And I noticed somewhere along the way, it's unbelievable that almost every single person if not every single person I met who has transitioned say I met somebody or I saw somebody on telly it's always another trans person opened the door to my consciousness that this is a doorway I could go through and is this true for you it is um so I remember the exact moment so I was in the butch femme scene I was dating a femme at the time and we were sitting uh, on my couch watching a documentary about trans kids and it was mainstream television and they were talking to these kids that were describing you know feeling bored in the wrong body or feeling like a mistake had been made so they were describing an experience that sounded exactly like mine and framing it as <clears throat> if you feel this it's because you are a trans person mm-hmm. so it, it wasn't if you spe- if you feel this you have an intersex condition or if you feel this you have gender dysphoria it was if you feel this you are a trans person and for me it was like this light bulb you know came on it's like well then i guess that's it i guess that's my answer because i still didn't really have an answer for why i felt this and what what it was about i kind of loosely felt like it had something to do with my intersex condition it had something to do with my same-sex attraction chances are my same-sex attraction was because of the intersex condition i mean there's there's evidence to to, to that right that that yeah neonatal exposure to high testosterone tends to make you same-sex attracted so i i mean i pieced that together you know with very little help from any research or medical professionals i think i had pieced that together for myself in a way that kind of made sense and i was limping along that way i still had that sense of incongruence but i was starting to make sense of it as hormone related and same-sex attraction that this is all somehow related and uh, and meeting other butch lesbians I thought well okay well this is this is what it is but when I saw that documentary it immediately turned that on its head because it provided a seemingly credible explanation for what I was feeling and it gave it a, a, a framework for the very first time. And did you, had you said to the other butch lesbians kind of in private conversations, uh, uh, you know, where you having the same, did you find out where they having the same experiences as you? And had you noticed maybe your facial hair was more or had, had you noticed a difference or were you thinking we're all the same here and we all should trans? I, I wasn't feeling like we should all should trans, but I did feel like maybe there was something similar going on for all of us. I mean, it, it wasn't something that was really openly discussed very much, regret, regrettably. Um, yeah. So I think we might have avoided a lot of what's happened if we had opened up more. But uh, yeah. some of them did have more facial hair. Like there was some butch lesbians that I knew, they were very physically masculine and did have some facial hair. 
And it was very common amongst that cohort of lesbians to talk a lot about having gynecological problems and hormone imbalances, like something like PCOS. PCOS yeah. Mm-hmm. So high testosterone levels. That was so that was very much a part of how we all understood ourselves and each other was oh, yeah. we are these very highly masculinized women because of a hormone imbalance. So you saw this documentary, you get this concept, this new concept, which seems to give at the time you thought this is a better explanation than like all these piecemeal things. Then what happened? Did you immediately think about yeah, to I mean, do this? Did you talk to your girlfriend? Like what happened? Yeah, I turned to my girlfriend and said, well, that's me. She says, yeah, I know. And and then one of her friends was um, a social worker at the gender clinic. And so, um, so my girlfriend at the time made an, an appointment with me to see her friend at the gender clinic. We talked about it a little bit and, and I said, well, I've seen this documentary. I'm obviously trans because I have all these these feelings and experiences. And then she booked me in with the physician. And about three months later, I was on testosterone. Wow. What age were you? Which, you know, in hindsight, it's you know, people. So at that age, I would have been in my early 30s by that wow. time. You know, when people say, you know, knowing what you know now, do you regret it? I mean, it's regret's a funny word. Like, what's <laughs> the point of regret at this point? But it, I may have, I may have at some still chosen, like, had I understood this as, okay, this is about your intersex condition and X, Y, and Z, if I had an actual reality-based framework that was confirmed and, and, and I understood it, I still may have decided to, to start testosterone. I mean, I still feel like as someone with an intersex condition who had that been left in my body, if I had still had an ovotestes, I would have continued to masculinize that should have been my choice. So I may have still chosen to masculinize. My biggest grievance is the meaning attached to all of this. Mm. And I think that's what causes us the most distress as well. I don't think the incongruence itself has to be seen as, as a horribly you know, shaming or pathologizing thing. I think it's the meaning that we attach to it and not having a framework that we can truly kind of rest our identities in in a very secure way that isn't constantly being challenged and needing to be renegotiated with the rest of the world you know and it's inevitable that we create stories for ourselves i, I don't that's how our minds work we, we need a storyline to make sense of, of ourselves and our reality and and without a, an evidence-based grounding in, in our experience we are going to invent a storyline to just get through our day and and that storyline, if it has distortions, you're always going to have a sense of feeling insecure. And that storyline is always going to be challenged by material reality around you and other people's opinions. And I think that's why we're seeing so much distress and turmoil and meltdowns in the trans community is the creation of these senses of self and identities based on a narrative that isn't actually true. I agree so much. And I also think the the most scary detransition experience narratives that we've heard are also people who had this really serious crash and burn because the material reality hit them and they went into transition with such like really um not delusional expectations because of like the mental health issue of being trans but because of what the physicians and therapists failed to help them understand 
And so I think you're so right that a reality-based framework, I mean, that's almost where the real human rights issue is. Like if you come to your physician with gender dysphoria, you have the right to be explained here are all the things that might be going on contributing to your experience. That doesn't have to be pathologizing, but it has to be reality-based. And I wonder, you know, we were touching on this before we started. You don't talk about your intersex condition that much. And you said, you know, I'm happy to explain why I tend not to. Do you want to say a little bit about that? Sure. I, there's a couple of reasons. One is just because intersex and trans gets conflated so much and intersex conditions tend to be misused in that conversation. And so that's part of why maybe I shy away from, from talking about it too much because I don't want to I don't want to be appear to be adding to that conflation between those two things. But I think in terms of my own identity development, it was also very confused because of just the sequence of events as they happened. Um, I had, I had be, started to develop a lesbian identity before I even knew about the intersex condition. And so trying to make sense of my own identity with these little bits of information along the way is complicated. And, and then you take like Blanchard's typology of what of transsexualism. It's like, well, what I guess I'm a homosexual transsexual then. I mean, I am same-sex attracted, but where does intersex fit into that? And, and so that it is when I'm trying to sort of position myself in this conversation, it's like, well, do I position myself as a homosexual transsexual or do I do I position myself as intersex? I mean, those chances are those two things are related anyway, and, and the intersex condition probably probably came before the same sex attraction. So I don't know. It's just confusing to sort of explain where I fit mm -hmm. into mm -hmm. the conversation with this this sort yeah. of constellation of facts. And yeah, and also you're you're also an incredibly thoughtful commentator on these things. I mean, you work in mental health. You, your podcast is brilliant. So not only do you have your personal experience, but you've done a great deal of super interesting and thorough analysis on top of it. So, you know, there are some people that kind of float into this world with their own personal narrative. And that's not that's it in a negative way, but you're also somebody who's bringing a lot of insight into this whole thing, especially about like the queer theory and that backstory. So I, I can understand it's this world tends to kind of categorize people like all, all worlds do. So um, self-disclosure is challenging because you don't want to be pigeonholed into a box that you don't intend to be. Yeah, and everyone has different ideas about how we should be using these words too. I mean, mm. I use the word intersex um, for myself, but some people say, well, you shouldn't be using that word anymore. You should be using DSD, but then other people with DSDs who aren't technically intersex they say well no you need to be more specific in talking about your condition and so it, no matter what language you use you end up being you end up upsetting somebody um i mean my mom still uses uses the word hermaphrodite and, and i that's something i didn't mention is that it was only about three years ago that she told me she had an aunt with the same condition she calls it hermaphrodite but it's it was the same condition. and i never knew that it was never and she never told you in all those years that, mom. She never brought it she up. Never did. No. No. Wow. Wow. Oh, and uh, so I've been uh, trying to uh, find out more about that. Oh, but she's, mommy. She's <laughs> um, what what is your reflections? You must be fifteen years transitioned, if I'm doing my maths right, or at least. And what is your yeah, reflection? I think I'm in Sixteen years now. Sixteen years. What do you think now? 
do you think it was, it was, did it give you peace? Do you think it was a road that was a good fit for you? Do you think it, it, it led you to places where it has been a good life for you? Or do you think actually I could have taken other roads? I know we don't know. I know we can't do this sliding doors, but it would be interesting to hear what you think. Yeah, I mean, no amount of therapy would have ever undone the effects of testosterone on my body that had already happened because of my intersex condition. And so I still I may have, like I said, I still may have chosen to take testosterone and then medicalize. And I use hormone replacement therapy for, for myself because for me it was, I mean, my, my own testes was producing testosterone and I was, I ended up choosing to replace oh, yeah. that testosterone in my case. But what I would say that, that choosing to masculinize resolved my own bodily discomfort. I do feel more comfortable in my own skin when I look in the mirror. Um, but it, it's taken me a long time to piece together an accurate storyline. Mm -hmm. And I would say that is my biggest regret is I just wish I had accurate information right from the very beginning. So they could have built a, an identity right from the very beginning on accurate information rather than building an identity and then dismantling it and then trying to build it again and dismantling it. I mean, that is what causes a lot of distress and a lot of lost years in life. Oh, well, it's, it's very important to kind of frame it that way. And I think that's really powerful. Thank you for sharing your story, Aaron. We're going to keep you on a few more moments for our dinner party conversation. These exclusive content, but for our general audience, I think this is a good place to wrap it. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. Listener support means a lot to us. If you enjoy the show, please like and subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. For more information, visit widerlenspod.com. There you'll learn about joining our listener community, how to contribute to our show, and where to find us on social media. Our discussions are for educational purposes and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services. 